0: Hello and welcome to The HOA Show, where we discuss the news, problems, trends, and critical issues relating to life in a homeowner association. Join us every episode and together we'll explore how to survive and thrive in the dizzying world of HOAs. Hello
1: and welcome to The HOA Show. I'm your host, Ryan Gazelle, and in this episode we'll be discussing amending and restating governing documents. I'm joined today by two extremely knowledgeable people, Brittany Ketchum of the law firm Beaumont Tajan and Tim Klein of the Klein Agency Insurance Brokers. Brittany is an associate attorney with Beaumont Tajan, a law firm specializing in common interest developments. She's a graduate of Chapman University, where she graduated cum laude with a double major in political science and German. Das ist gut, Brittany. I like it. It's good, yes? She earned her JD from Pepperdine's University School of Law, and she is very active in the CAI Orange County chapter. She is currently on the CAI Orange County Board Executive Committee and a past chair of the CAI OC Education Committee. Thank you both for lending your expertise today. Thanks, Ryan.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yes. So, Brittany, uh, maybe assumes that you are, in fact, of German descent. Naturally. My
2: mom was born in Germany.
1: Wow. As you can guess, gazelle. I'm of German descent myself. Wonderful. Brittany, how did you get sucked into the world of community association law?
2: You know, it's funny. Out of all of the attorneys that I know in the industry and that I've worked with, I haven't met one that set out to practice community association law. No one went to law school that I know of to pursue this type of career. Fortunately, when I was in law school, I applied to a law clerk position at beaumont Tashton. And I was hired. And now, 10 years later, here I am.
1: All right. Well, I'm glad that Jeff and Lisa hired you.
2: (laughs) As am I. And they've been so wonderful to work with. And, you know, they both have been mentors to me. And I'm sure you know their reputation in the industry is very strong. And so I'm very proud to be part of their firm.
1: Absolutely. So our topic today is one that uh, may feel a little overwhelming to a lot of folks, amending and restating governing documents. So we're gonna try to break it down into sections, uh, make it a little more clear. First, what exactly are governing documents? Then we'll discuss how to evaluate your existing documents and maybe what sections you should be most concerned about. And finally, how to go about changing them. So first and foremost, Brittany, what are governing documents? They get a little confusing we've got CCNRs, we've got bylaws, we've got rules and regulations. What is the difference between all of these? Yeah,
2: so as the name would suggest, governing documents are those documents that govern the operation of a community interest development or a community association. So first we've got the CCNRs which are the recorded documents they're recorded with the county recorder's office and typically homeowners will receive those when they purchase their home. And those covenants and conditions are presumed reasonable because they're recorded. And those are binding on all owners, you know, current and future owners. Bylaws are a separate document that basically govern the administration of the community interest development and basically how the community interest development operates as a corporation. So, for example, the bylaws govern how meetings are held, how elections are conducted, they address the qualifications of directors and how the board is set up. Bylaws are not recorded, but both documents, the CCNRs and the bylaws, require a vote of the members and a vote by secret ballot. However, rules and regulations are not recorded, and they're not voted on by the members. Those are adopted by the board. So those are, are the three primary governing documents that you got. CCNRs, bylaws, rules, and regulations, and then we also have articles of incorporation if your community is incorporated. And there's a hierarchy provided for by the law that basically states that the CCNRs trump over the other documents to the extent that there's any inconsistency. So you have got your CCNRs are first in line, then the articles of incorporation, then the bylaws, and then the rules. To the extent there's any inconsistency, that's the hierarchy that will govern. And then, of course, the law is king, so the law will trump over any inconsistencies in those governing documents.
1: So in the order of hierarchy, the law comes first, and then the CCNRs, and then the bylaws and rules and regulations? Exactly. So the CCNRs is kind of like the Bible, and the rules and regs are the uh, notes in the, in the sidelines, right?
2: <laughs> Great example, yeah.
1: All right. CCNRs gets very, very confusing. We know that the governing documents are, we know what they are and what they do. Let's talk about evaluating those CCNRs. What do folks need to be concerned about when reviewing their current set of documents? Obviously, the easy answer is, you know, have your attorney review them, but, you know, that can get expensive. Is there a more general guideline? I mean, basically speaking, if our governing documents are only a few years old, should we be just fine?
2: Well, as I'm sure you and your listeners are aware, there's a portion of the Civil Code known as the Davis-Sterling Common Interest Development Act that governs community associations, or CIDs, homeowners associations. And it seems like yearly legislation is enacted or proposed to change this portion of the Civil Code. So within the last three to four years alone, we've seen a lot of changes in the Davis Sterling Common Interest Development Act. And so those changes, if, if they're not reflected in the governing documents, they could make your governing documents unreliable. You know, in the past couple of years, we've seen legislation that actually requires affirmative action by the association to amend the governing documents. AB 3182, which addresses leasing restrictions, it basically states that association governing documents can no longer effectively prohibit or unreasonably restrict renting or leasing and requires that associations actually amend their governing documents by December 31st, 2021, in order to comply with that new law. So we're actually now seeing law that's requiring associations to amend the governing documents.
1: And of course- Brittany, just to jump in here real quick, if the law trumps the uh, CCNRs, why does the law now require that those CCNRs be restated? I mean, wouldn't just having the law be there be enough?
2: The wisdom of the legislature. (laughs) For the most part, yes, you're correct and that the law prevails over the governing documents to the extent of any inconsistencies. But here we have a law on the books that actually states associations must amend the governing documents by the end of you know, this year, if you're listening to this podcast in 2021.
1: Well, that was sure nice of the legislature.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't it? And there's a question of, you know, does this requirement that the association amend governing documents mean that they have to go through the hoop of having members vote by secret ballot to amend the CCNR? So for example, if you have a minimum lease term in your CCNRs of one year, that's no longer valid and enforceable. And now associations are required to amend the governing documents to eliminate that requirement. Associations can impose a 30-day minimum lease term, but does that mean communities have to amend the CCNRs, or can they adopt a rule change that would impose a 30-day minimum lease term? But then if they do that, there's a conflict between the rules, which would have a 30-day minimum lease term, and the cc which would have a one-year minimum lease term. So there's a conflict there. Our firm's approach, and I think best practice, is to at least attempt to amend the CCNRs. Of course, there might be voter apathy. It might be impossible to get that vote. And, you know, we can talk about later how to be proactive and make sure that you're able to get that approval of the members. But yeah, so it's, the legislature has not clearly instructed associations on how they're supposed to get this amendment done.
1: So you mentioned the leasing restrictions. That's uh, something in, that came up recently that needs to be addressed. What else has come down the pipeline that even if you're only a, a few years old, your association needs to be changed already?
2: Yeah, there are definitely other laws that have come into play in the past few years. So, for example, SB 323, which amends the law regarding director qualifications so that would affect the community's bylaws. If, so For example, you have qualifications in your bylaws that are inconsistent with this new law, it would be prudent to amend the bylaws as well. And again, to the extent that the new law conflicts with your governing documents, the new law will prevail.
1: But if you're doing it anyway, you might as well get these other things done. Exactly. Okay. So SB 323, um, AB 3182, what else?
2: So yeah, there are other laws that don't necessarily require an amendment, but they may create conflicts between the governing documents and the law. So for example, the law now requires a monthly review of the association's financials, whereas before it was a quarterly review. So if your governing documents require the quarterly review and you're relying on that, where there's a law in effect that requires monthly review, there's, there's some exposure to liability there. Again, the law will prevail, but if you're relying on these outdated documents, it's, it's a concern. There's another great example of old bylaws that allow boards to take action outside of a meeting if there's unanimous consent. We see that in a lot of older bylaws. But as you know, the Davis Sterling Act has a portion of it of the act that is known as the Open Meeting Act. So it requires notice be provided to members for board meetings and allow members to attend all board meetings except those held in executive session or emergency board meetings. And so Relying on bylaws that state the board may have a meeting without noticing the members is definitely a concern.
3: Brittany, I had a question, and that is, if the board is really apathetic and chooses not to make these changes, are there any teeth in the law, any negative consequences for the board? Other than, for example, in the Fidelity bond, they may not have the right amount of liability coverage.
2: Yeah, like I said, relying on documents that are outdated and that are inconsistent with the law creates exposure to liability. So if you have documents that you're following that are inconsistent with the law and you're unaware of the changes in the law and you're taking action that uh, that's inconsistent with the law, there's definitely exposure to liability for, among other things, breach of fiduciary duties and things like that.
1: Gotcha. Thank you. Any kind of monetary penalties that can be assessed to the association if they don't comply with restating the documents, say, for the leasing agreement?
2: Yes, definitely. That's that's a good point. There is a monetary civil penalty that associations would be subject to if they fail to amend by the end of this year.
3: Maybe jail time that the board can serve on weekends? Just just kidding.
1: (laughs) Don't worry, boards. You won't be serving jail time for that. (laughs) Hopefully. Uh, And then anything that maybe a board should consider taking out of their CCNRs that may be in there that cause problems?
2: Yeah, Ryan, that's a great question. Um, So there are most documents, if not all documents, include developer provision, protections for the developer, marketing rights, different class voting structures for the developer, which allow the developer to appoint or elect a representative to serve on the board. So at a certain point, those provisions are no longer necessary may lead to confusion. So once the developer's interests are no longer valid, then it's a good idea to amend the documents to eliminate those provisions. And to that note, amending the documents for clarity is definitely useful and a practical approach to get rid of that, you know, legal leave where, you know, what good are governing documents if we can't understand them? And so, you know, our firm's approach when we're writing governing documents, or even just, you know, writing legal opinions to our client is, How do we effectively communicate without using legalese and jargon that nobody can understand? And I I think governing documents using simple language is definitely useful and practical. Another tool that I like to include in governing documents, specifically the CCNRs, is a maintenance matrix. So, you know, an exhibit to the CCNR is basically a checklist. Of maintenance, repair, and replacement responsibility for the different components within the community, which is a useful tool in preparing budgets, for preparing your reserve study and reserve funding plan. It's a great tool to use for those projects, as well as eliminating the possibility of dispute when it comes to maintenance, repair, and replacement. So we get a, the question a lot of times: Who's responsible for maintaining, you know, the pipes in the walls or? Who's responsible for maintaining the balcony railings, the patio walls and you know things like that? So those components that are a significant source of dispute in the community that are costly repairs, things like that, having this maintenance matrix with this component specifically listed out with a check mark next to who's responsible between the owner and the association really helps to reduce unbudgeted expenses for the associations. For example, attorney's fees for legal opinions and even lawsuits.
3: Well, I want to really compliment your firm. I think your firm does this better than any other firm I've seen in, in the industry in terms of preparing these maintenance matrices, which we find very helpful as well.
2: Wow, that's a huge compliment. Thank you.
1: And one of the things that we do like about your maintenance matrix is that you, you usually include a section not just about whose responsibility is to maintain, repair, or replace, but also the insurance side of it. Tim, I I was hoping you could jump in here. You know, we've seen CCNRs with a, a matrix that delineates the maintenance responsibilities and the insurance responsibilities. And obviously, these two sections are different in the CCNRs and sometimes at odds with each other. So which section of the CCNRs do you think that the carrier, the insurance carrier, is going to be most concerned with from a coverage standpoint?
3: the board is obligated to follow the most stringent requirement so whether it's in the maintenance repair portion or in the insurance section of the governing documents whatever stringent requirement exists they must comply with that
1: when you say stringent you mean uh, the most broad
3: i think the most broad the most uh, imposing in terms of coverage and scope I, i think if they fail to meet that higher standard they're going to have an exposure there's a loss And so by extension, I think the insurance broker and the carrier behoove them to make sure they follow the most stringent requirement that exists in either of those two provisions. And I just want to really reiterate this. In the old days, we were lucky if we got a copy of the CCNRs to review. Thankfully, more managers are providing copies of CCNRs for agents and brokers, which is super important because that shifts the liability, I think, onto the shoulders of the broker and uh, makes them responsible for making sure that there's compliance. And we used to only get copies of the insurance section. Now more managers are hip that there's also an obligation to meet to the degree possible, the repair obligations as well. And so insurance coverage is now looking more as a funding mechanism to make sure that the board has the financial wherewithal to meet that repair obligation, whether it should exist in the maintenance and repair section or these wonderful uh, matrixes that your firm provides, Brittany.
1: So you think that if there's a loss, presumably, I mean, obviously, every adjuster is going to respond differently, that the carrier will not only look at the insurance section, but also the maintenance and repair section?
3: Well, I think the carrier is obligated to pay what, they were, you know, what their contract calls for. So regardless of that, you know, notwithstanding the requirements in the CCRs, and uh, the, the carrier is going to pay what they've said they're, they're obligated to pay. You know, obviously, we're talking about both first-party claims in this circumstance. So, you know, we're really talking about what the board is obligated to meet in order to protect the interests of the individual separate interests. And while I'd like to think that the carrier will always stand behind their insured, the fact is that they're only going to pay a dollar when a dollar is due, uh, meaning if they, if they fail to meet the requirement or the insurance agent or broker fail to review that section, uh, they're only going to pay what they're obligated to and nothing more.
1: Tim, you mentioned, uh, and it just occurred to me, that so many times we get old copies of CCNRs or just the insurance section, and sometimes they're actually illegible. One of the advantages of having a new set of CCNRs is it's a searchable PDF. Brittany, did you want to talk about anything else that we need to be concerned about and in, in what we should change about the CCNRs?
2: Yeah, just to be sure that you're including any missing key provisions in your governing document. So, for example, we like to include a provision that exculpates the association from certain liabilities. So, an exculpatory provision is one that relieves the association from liability for any damage to the interior of, you know, the condominium unit, most specifically, for any external source. So, whether that's water, dust, sand, etc., flowing from the exterior of the unit into the interior of the unit, so long as the association was not negligent so as long as the association didn't have knowledge of whatever you know defect or component failure caused the damage and you know failed to take action they wouldn't be responsible for the interior damage which i i think is really important when we're talking about units that may be upgraded with you know hardwood flooring or new cabinets and things like that however if there is insurance for those components under the association's policy, that exculpatory provision wouldn't affect that coverage.
1: You mentioned uh, water damage there. In the past few years, there's been a lot of discussion about adopting a a water damage procedure policy for an association since, you know, so many of these pipes are getting older and we're seeing so many water leaks. Would you recommend adding that to the CC&Rs or is that strictly a a rule or procedure that's adopted?
2: That's a great question, Ryan. There's actually case law that has upheld these exculpatory provisions that are included in the CCNRs. And as we talked about earlier, CCNRs are recorded. So they first are presumed reasonable and second, provide what we call constructive notice to homeowners, meaning that because they're recorded in the county recorder's office, homeowners who take title to a home in that community are presumed to have notice of those recorded covenants and restrictions. So it's best to include this type of provision in the CCNRs. However, if a board is a little bit less conservative, they could adopt this type of exculpatory provision in a water intrusion policy that you mentioned, which would require the board to follow that 28 day comment period in civil code section 4340 and accompanying sections in order to procedurally adopt that as a rule.
1: But the rule is then enforceable, even though it's not in the CCNRs.
2: Correct. Yes. And as long as it's not inconsistent with the CCNRs.
1: Speaking of enforceable, we get asked a lot, uh, even by insurance carriers, if the CCNRs require the unit owners to maintain HO6 coverage or an individual unit owner policy. Is that something that you recommend be included in the CCNRs? And if so, do you think it's enforceable?
2: So we typically include a provision that recommends and encourages homeowners to obtain an HO six policy. And the reason for that is while well, the CCR certainly can require homeowners to maintain coverage for their units or their home, once you require the homeowners to do something, the board is then obligated to enforce that provision. So that means the the board would basically need to police the fact that the homeowners are in fact maintaining this type of coverage, meaning that The board has an affirmative duty then to solicit copies of the homeowners insurance policies and make sure, one, that they're obtaining that policy and and maintaining it throughout the term, as well as having the sufficient coverage as required by the CCNRs. We always suggest, you know, putting homeowners on notice that it's their responsibility to insure their units and that they should maintain. And obtain this coverage, but not necessarily requiring it because then that triggers the board's duty to police the fact that the owners have that coverage
1: and presents more liability.
3: Yeah, I'm in complete agreement. Uh, You know, if you have a hundred unit association, you've got a hundred different renewal dates you have to keep track of. And, you know, it's like a full time risk management job, just keeping up on the various renewals that are coming and whether or not the coverage is sufficient. And then, if, they, if the coverage isn't sufficient or they overlook something and there is a loss, exactly. like a catastrophic fire or something, they've got a huge exposure.
2: Exactly. It definitely places a, a great administrative burden on management and the board.
3: So, our position is educate, but don't have enforcement obligation.
1: Tim, I know you've been asked to evaluate hundreds of sets of CCRs in your time. Are there any other sections or issues that you think boards uh, or attorneys should take a closer look at?
3: You know, the one area that seems to be consistent. Is in the liability section of the CCNRs, and it, I don't know if it came from a toilet plate set, but somehow it has an obligation that requires the board to purchase a liability policy that protects the association for the ownership, maintenance, and use of the common area. Now, there's a lot of activities that could be described as using the common area that would create a lot of liability coverage. walking a dog with a biting history, for example, or playing uh, lawn darts or uh, setting off fireworks or playing uh, with a drone. All these things could create exposure. And if the board is obligated to purchase a policy that covers for the ownership, maintenance, and use of the common area, and they fail to buy that policy, all of a sudden they become the insurer of record for that owner who's using the common area. And that obviously is something that we just can't purchase, it's not commercially available. So that needs to be amended so that it says ownership, maintenance, and repair of the common area, which is really what the the intent was. And that is, if there's vicarious liability by virtue of the fact that uh, an individual unit owner is sued because there's a trip and fall on the sidewalk leading to his or her unit, and the sidewalk is still the obligation of the association to maintain, but nevertheless, the owner gets named, that under the ownership, maintenance, and repair of the common area description, uh, they would have coverage under the liability policy, and that's fine. But if there's CCNRs out there, and there are a lot of them, that that require the board to purchase a policy that covers for the ownership, maintenance, and use of the common area, you got a problem.
1: Brittany, any thoughts?
2: Yeah, Tim, I couldn't agree more. And I actually do have a question for you. As far as the liability policy and the statutory minimum, Required by law, do you usually recommend that communities obtain policies in an excess of that minimum amount? Whenever we prepare CCNR amendments based on insurance provisions, we always recommend that our clients seek out the advice and input from their broker or agent before we formally adopt those CCNRs. But we always suggest talking to their agent to get their opinion on whether the policy should maintain coverage in an excess of that minimum statutory amount.
3: Yeah, I agree. It's an interesting circumstance. The, the, the davis Sterling Act, as it sits now, requires the association to provide uh, at least $2 million worth of liability of coverage if it's 100 or less units, or $3 million if it's more than 100 units. But I can ch- assure you that if there's a wrongful death on the premises, uh, some sympathetic jury is not going to care how much liability coverage the association maintains. They're going to award based on what they think you know, the, the family of that victim is entitled to. And so if they award for eight or $10 million, and the association only has you know, the required three million prescribed by the governing documents, the association is gonna have a shortfall. And if they don't have reserves in that amount, I'm sure they don't, then there will be a special assessment, and each owner will be responsible for that share of the shortfall anyway. You know, I think that in those circumstances, and we certainly know there's areas in, in Southern California, for example, that are highly litigious, You want to make sure you maintain more than just the minimum amount, because, again, a a sympathetic jury is not going to care. They're going to award what they think that the injured party or their family is entitled to.
1: And certainly, the directors and officers' liability requirements of the Civil Code are underwhelming. Would you agree, Tim?
3: Well, I sure would. Uh, You know, we talked about this in another podcast, but the the directors and officers' liability coverage is only requiring $500,000 if it's a project that's 100 or less units and a million dollars for the director's and officer's liability coverage if it's more than 100 units. And that's just not enough. You know, uh, commercial umbrellas have gotten more expensive in the last six to eight months, but there's nevertheless the most inexpensive way to buy more liability coverage. And the benefit of buying a a well-drafted commercial umbrella policy is that it will not only over your general liability coverage, but also over your director's and officer's liability coverage simultaneously. So it's an inexpensive way to increase both, potentially.
1: And Tim, do the umbrella carriers have a requirement for the underlying directors and officers limit?
3: Yeah, typically it's a million dollars required in the underlying D&O policy.
1: So So even if you met the civil code requirement, you couldn't get an umbrella with that limit of $500,000?
3: Yeah, it's a a pretty ridiculously low amount. I'm hoping the California legislature will address this in this upcoming session.
1: So now that we've identified that our governing documents are antiquated and we'll probably all get sued and go to jail, how exactly do we go about amending them so that doesn't happen?
2: Well, I don't know if we're going to jail, but we definitely might get sued. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in order to proceed with amending the CCRs and bylaws, a secret ballot vote of the members is required. And so many associations have experience with this dual envelope procedure, which requires the engagement of an inspector of election. It's the same procedures that are used for an election of directors at the annual meetings. So we have to go through that same process for the amendment to the governing documents. And in addition, they've got your secret ballot, your voting instructions, dual envelope. And we also have to send out the text of the proposed amendment along with that voting package. CCNRs and and bylaws will, will require, they'll set forth the minimum approval requirement. So most of the time it's going to be, you know, a majority or 51% of the members vote in favor to approve. We'll also see a supermajority requirement. So that's 67, 75% of the members required to vote yes in order to approve the documents. But we also might see the requirement that lender approval must be obtained before the governing documents become effective. Lender approval, typically you'll see provisions that state written lender approvals required. And so, because lenders are not members of the association, the protocols are not as stringent and it would not require a secret ballot process unless the governing documents specifically call for that. Rather, we would only need to obtain the written approval of the lenders. And there's case law that suggests that the failure of a lender to respond timely, if the request is sent by certified mail, would be deemed approval. So the failure of the lender to respond within a stated timeframe is deemed approval. So it's not necessarily a bar to obtaining a successful vote on the document, but it is another hoop that the association would need to jump through in order to finalize the document.
1: And that certainly seems like uh, something you'd want to take out of the restated documents, right?
2: Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So in the event lender approvals required, one provision I like to include is in order to prevent lenders from voting against the proposal would be to require the approval of eligible lenders to put the duty on the lenders to submit a request to the association in writing to be on that list of eligible lenders, then requiring the board to seek approval from those specific lenders rather than all lenders. Because once... Lender approval is required, that means the association has to survey the members, request that the members submit their lender information, or if members do not respond to that request, then to research title and find lender information in order to reach out to those lenders. So definitely a lengthy process and and should be amended out of the governing document.
1: That does sound like a lengthy and time-consuming process. So approximately how long does it usually take to restate documents as far as notifying the lenders, the secret ballots, getting it all approved and voted?
2: So we typically recommend going through the secret balloting process first because, as we'll discuss soon, you might experience some voter apathy and and might even get some no votes and not be able to move forward with the amendment until you proceed with certain measures. And so I would typically recommend proceeding with the secret ballot vote first. That means send the ballots out, wait 30 days, and have the meeting to vote. So if and when the members vote in favor of the amendment and the amendment passes by the members, then the next step would be lender approval. So sending out that written notice to lenders, waiting 30 days, lenders fail to respond or otherwise vote in favor, then you can proceed with finalizing the documents with notarized signatures and then sending to the county recorder's office for recordation. And then once they're recorded, they're then sent out and distributed to the membership, and that's when they become effective. So it's not until you actually record the documents after receiving all the approvals and then send them out to the, the membership is when they're effective. And that's for CCNRs. Like I stated before, bylaws do not need to be recorded, but they do need to be sent out to the members after approval.
1: My question is, I guess, if you've got, you know, a new law uh, in the Civil Code that has a time date stamped, you know like the leasing agreement you have to comply by december 31st at the end of 2021 how long in advance do associations need to get this done and handled
2: So, because the law requires the amendment to be effective as of the end of 2021 it would be prudent to start now because it, it would take at least 60 days if your documents require lender approval and could take even more if other approvals are required so for example the city or county might have to give their written approval before the document can become effective. We have a client in San Clemente, uh, we just successfully completed an amendment to the CCNRs, and rs but the city of San Clemente required not only written approval from the city's planning director, but also the city council. So that amendment had to actually be placed on a city council agenda. It was a huge hurdle, definitely took a lot of time, but it was not a bar to the successful completion of that amendment, which was great news. So the best approach is to give yourself time to, to start now for um, an amendment that needs to be done by the end of 2021.
1: Okay, so best case scenario, you're looking at a minimum of 60 days, worst case scenario, way longer. And getting members to vote sounds fantastic, but the reality is most boards have a lot of trouble getting the owners to return ballots. So, what happens if they spend all this money on redrafting the documents and mailing out the ballots, and then they don't get enough ballots back to even move forward?
2: My recommendation is always to be proactive. So, from the time that the members are first notified that the board is Proceeding with listing their vote for an amendment to the governing documents to start basically campaigning. Then sending out newsletters, flyers, mailers, and other forms of association media. So maybe you have an internet website, or some of our clients have their own TV broadcasting, or you know, podcasts. So to start early and often, really educate the members on not only the substantive text of the amendment and the reason for the change. So you know, all the reasons that we stated earlier, inconsistencies with the laws, confusion, developer provisions, the legal legalese, things like that, to really educate the members on why the amendment is necessary and to also educate the members on the process, so what they can expect. You can expect you will be receiving a ballot. Here's how you return the ballot. It's very important that you vote because, you know, if you don't return your ballot, it's going to cost the association additional resources. So, like I said, educating the members and really campaigning for the amendment but it's important to note there's a caveat to campaigning. There's case law that has held that an association's campaign statement, so you know, encouraging members to vote yes on an amendment triggers this equal access to association media requirement. So once the association, because the board members are members, once they campaign for this amendment, they then have to open up the association media to other members to advocate a position. So that's just something that the board would need to be aware of. But I think it is worth the risk to really educate the members on the need for the amendment. And then we also have suggested to our clients to offer incentives for the return of ballots. I've had clients that have had a raffle. They've offered prizes to um, their members for returning a ballot. And of course, the raffle can't be tied to a yes vote, only to the return of a ballot. And boards to consider you know, budgeting for this and placing it as a line item in the budget if they're going to consider that option. I've also had another client that did during the summer out in Riverside County, where it's very hot, they had an ice cream social. So if you brought your ballot to the meeting or otherwise returned the ballot before the meeting date, you got ice cream. So that was a a huge success. It it actually worked. Other clients have done wine and cheese events, but make sure you you talk to your attorney about having and serving alcohol in your community before having a wine and cheese event.
1: I love the carrot option there, uh, but if the carrot doesn't work, then you're going to need the stick option, correct? And I've heard it uh, suggested, Janet Powers actually suggested, I've heard her talk about, you know, sending out the scary letter so that if you don't get, you know, enough votes, you, you let folks know if we don't get enough votes back, we're going to have to go to court and that's going to cost you more money. Have you tried that? We're seeing that.
2: Yes, we definitely have sent that scary letter and it's worked. So the scary letter that Ms. Powers references is basically warning the homeowners that if they don't return their ballots and we can't move forward with this amendment, we're going to go to court, which is going to cost the association money. And so, you know, sometimes that scary letter doesn't work and you actually have to put your money where your mouth is and go to court. And fortunately, the legislature has provided a resource for the association to do so. So there's a um, civil code section 4275 that allows the association to petition the court to reduce the percentage of affirmative votes necessary to amend, meaning in simple English, we can go to the court and ask the court to approve the amendment. And the same is true for an amendment to the bylaws that's provided by the Corporation's Code, 7515 is the section. So before going to court, though, and and that's definitely an option, as long as the board receives more than 50% votes in favor of the amendment, meaning that more than 50% of the members have to vote in favor of the amendment to go forward with the, the petition. But before doing that, like I said, educating the members is the best approach. Um, We often recommend having a town hall meeting with the members before the secret ballots are even distributed. So distributing the document first, so the text of the amendment, giving the homeowners an opportunity and time to review the amendment, and then holding a town hall meeting where the attorney that prepared the amendment is present so that members can ask questions. And again, you know, education is key here.
1: So if the governing documents require, say, you know, 75 percent of the members to approve and you don't get that, can the court reduce that percentage requirement?
2: Yes. So the court will approve the amendment if you get more than 50 percent of the homeowners voting yes, even though your, your documents required a supermajority approval.
1: So it's automatically 50 percent.
2: It would be prudent to, moving forward, amend that provision to reduce the supermajority requirement because you would then need for your next amendment, you don't get the votes required, you would then have to go back to court again. If you're gonna amend your governing documents and not do a complete restatement in amendment, but to do an individual spot amendment, it would be a good idea to consider amending not only, for example, if you're doing a, an amendment to the leasing restrictions, to also amend that provision that requires the supermajority of vote. So in essence, there would be you know two amendments. So that way, if you do wanna amend the governing documents in the future, you wouldn't have to go to court if you get a majority
1: of, of yes votes. Interesting, Tim. Did you have any other concerns or, or questions for Brittany? I know it
3: sounds it sounds interesting. I think this just, just requires so much education to motivate people to come out and support the change and the modification of the CCNR. So it's so critically important.
1: And I imagine Brittany that it's a lot harder now uh, during a, a pandemic when you can't have these kinds of socials and and things to get folks to affirmatively take action.
2: Exactly. Yeah, it is difficult. However, you know, the incentive that would allow for raffles can still be done remotely. So at least there's one tool.
1: Great. Anything else you'd like to suggest or offer, Brittany?
2: I think the only thing that I missed earlier was once the association sends out the ballots, there's voter apathy the ballots aren't returned and there's a deadline to return the ballots. typically the meeting date where the ballots will be tabulated and counted, the board can reserve the right to extend the deadline for return of those ballots. So for example, if you say January 1st, your ballot's due, come January 1st, we don't even have a quorum, we can extend that deadline you know, 30, 60 days, whatever the board decides by providing notice to the homeowners and ensuring that that language is on the secret ballot. So that way, you know, you're not up against the clock and you can evaluate come January 1st, say, okay, let's, you know, form an ad hoc committee to go out and solicit votes, go door to door or, you know, make phone calls in this COVID climate to really, you know, hit the pavement and solicit those ballots.
1: So I guess some quick takeaways. Contact your attorneys or your your association's legal counsel, ASAP, to make sure that your governing documents are in compliance with any new laws that are giving a timeline, right?
2: Yes, you definitely want to consult your attorney to make sure that there's no provisions regarding specifically leasing, you know, at this time as a result of AB. 3182, but there's no restrictions on renting or leasing that are contrary to the law because we do have that December 2021 deadline.
1: And certainly taking it a step forward, if you do contact an attorney, hopefully that attorney specializes in common interest development law.
2: Yes, that's a great idea.
1: Well, thank you so much, Brittany, for joining us today. Where can our listeners go for more information from you?
2: Well, it's been my pleasure, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. Our listeners can visit our website, which is HOAattorneys.com. We have a toll-free line as well, 866-788-9998. And then you can always reach me via email, B as in Brittany, uh, last name Ketchum, K-E-T-C-H-U-M, at HOAattorneys.com.
1: Thank you so much. Well, that's our show for today. A special thanks to our experts, Brittany Ketchum and Tim Klein for their time and wisdom. As we end our episode, we'd like to remind our listeners that if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for topics that you'd like to hear more about, email us at feedback at hoashow.org. Join us next time on The HOA Show.
0: To share or subscribe to the HOA Show, visit us at HOAShow.org. There, you'll be able to listen to other episodes, find helpful resources relating to HOAs, provide feedback, submit questions, and check out other great stuff. The HOA Show podcast has been made possible by the contributions of Klein agency insurance brokers, leaders in the community association industry. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast, its presenters and guests do not constitute legal advice. For more information on how the topics and discussion apply to you, please consult with your own legal counsel.